Well, hello, everybody. My name is Will Marshall. I'm president of the Progressive Policy Institute in Washington. Welcome to this PPI podcast uh, during this pandemic summer. Uh, our topic today is how to keep 25 million unemployed Americans afloat from going under uh, as this uh, pandemic uh, wears on with no end in sight. And we're very fortunate to have a good friend and special guest uh, here to lead our discussion. He is uh, Representative Don Beyer of the 8th District of Virginia. That's Northern Virginia. It also happens to be, uh, he happens to be my congressman and Ben Ritz's too, who I'll introduce in a second. Uh, and uh, uh, Don Beyer is, uh, in addition to being our congressman, uh, is vice chair of the Joint Economic Committee, which gives him uh, a kind of a great perch on economic uh, questions of all kinds. Uh, and he's the author of a, of a bill, which he's going to talk about, to, uh, I'll let him describe it, uh, to, to make sure that unemployed workers get the support they need in this, uh, in this uh, pandemic recession and shutdown. Um, I also wanted to introduce uh, my colleague, uh, Ben Ritz. Uh, ben is, uh, runs uh, PPI's uh, uh, project on uh, funding America's future and is a great fiscal and tax analyst. Uh, Congressman Byer, uh, I should also note that Congressman Byer is, uh, was a Lieutenant Governor for the state of Virginia. Uh, back in the 90s as an ambassador, a successful and really well-known businessman in, in Northern Virginia, um, and a real leader in our party as a new Democrat in Congress on this issue and climate change and many others besides. So again, thank you for joining us. Before you tell us a little bit about your bill, Congressman, can you just give us an update on this, this impasse, a stalemate in Congress where the Senate, Republican Senate, and the House Democrats have not been able to find uh, agreement on the next package of relief. And with the uh, CARES Act uh, provisions having just expired in July, that leaves all these workers in the lurch who got extended benefits and expanded benefits from the CARES Act. So can you offer any hope about how this stalemate will end quickly? Well, I don't know how pessimistic, optimistic to be. Certainly all the short-term signs and trails are pessimistic. Um, and the fact that Mark Meadows leading the Republican piece uh, is pessimistic because Mark, um, who is a very genial guy, nevertheless, he led the fight against John Boehner and Paul Ryan when they were the speakers of the House. And now he's in the White House trying to make sure nothing happens there also. My one big piece of hope is that I do think it is politically reckless, to almost to the point of political suicide, for the Republican leaders to do nothing to help the people in their states. You know, the 30 million unemployed, 18 million still filing for unemployment insurance, the $600 has gone away as of August 1st, and many of them are approaching the end of their 26 weeks of, of state unemployment insurance. Uh, most states are 26 weeks. I think Florida is the shortest at 12. There's one or two that are up to 39 weeks. But pretty soon, even that very low level is about to disappear for these folks. And it's, it's pretty frightening. So I'm hoping that the political imperative will bring people back together. I think, you know, our, our, our HEROES bill that we passed in the middle of May, so almost three months ago, um, spent $3 trillion dollars. 
And you know, Republicans accuse us of having a, a you know a wish list. Um, it was um, bold in the sense that year two fiscal years worth of relief for state and local governments. And you know, we did kept people in unemployment insurance at the six hundred dollars right through January thirty first, twenty twenty one, when we expect that we the pandemic. Um, but a lot of recognition economists we talked to said. Uh, including the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, said, think big. Don't, don't nickel and dime this and have a different political fight every couple of weeks. Let's just lay out on the table what we need to do to get through the pandemic um, and do, do it right. right. Now, as you well know, the initial White House offering was more like $1 trillion, which is not insignificant, but um, in many cases, there was no money for state and local government. There was no money in the original White House proposal for unemployment insurance. And while we had $75 billion for child nutrition, because so many kids in America are dependent on the federal government for food, the White House version had $250,000. I think that's a 3,001 ratio. Um, so Nancy Pelosi, God bless her, has said, look, we will compromise. We're eager to compromise. We'll, we'll right out of the box. We'll come down a trillion dollars and three trillion to two trillion, but you need to step up and come talk to us and we can work our way through. Uh, unfortunately, the Meadows Mnuchin response so far is silence. So I don't know, fingers crossed, because a lot of people are really going to be hurting if we can't come together. Right. Uh, well, it, it seems that since uh, passing the CARES Act, that big bill in, uh, in March, a lot of Republican senators have rediscovered their inner fiscal hawk, and uh, now they want to be fiscally responsible. Where were they in 2017 when this massive tax bill busted open our the budget uh, the deficit? But uh, you know, does any you know does anybody believe now? Is it, does this party have any credibility? Uh, the Republicans. Uh, as a party that wants to hold the line on fiscal spending in the midst of an emergency uh, after this administration has already, has already uh, passed a giant tax bill when the economy was doing well, at the precisely the time we didn't really need a stimulus. You know, we, we find that Republicans sadly only seem to care about fiscal responsibility when Democrats are in charge. Um, and so it is incredible. And once again, even many economists that you and I talk to all the time who do believe that we have a long-term public debt issue that we have to address will say this is not the time to address it. Right. When 30 million people are unemployed, when people are going to go hungry. And I, I know you and Ben and others are, are very familiar with the work of so many prominent economists that the only thing that has kept this recession, this depression from being worse, was CARES Act and and the 600 unemployment insurance. That those made an enormous difference in keeping our our, our most vulnerable, the, the bottom 25% of income earners, um, out of starvation and out of homelessness. Right. And when that goes away, we're going to be facing a a human suffering crisis like we haven't seen in 70 or 80 years. And, and as you pointed out, uh, Congressman, the, uh, you know, the projections are that double digit unemployment is not going to suddenly disappear. This could last uh, all the way through next year. Uh, 
and no one really knows when this pandemic is, is going to be under control. Well, tell us about your bill. You, you, you joined with, uh, with the Senators Reed and uh, Michael Bennett and others to, to do a bill that would ensure that these uh, 25 to 30 million uninsured, uh, un, excuse me, un, uh, unemployed folks will continue to get uh, support, pay their bills, pay their electricity bills, uh, pay their mortgage, pay the rent, um, put food on the table. Um, you know, tell, tell me a little about what your bill does to make sure that continues to happen. Well, Will, this, this picks up on an idea that's been around for a long time. Um, the, the, uh, taking the support, putting them on automatic stabilizer, uh, unquote. Uh, the whole idea is that when you have to have a political fight every couple of weeks, every couple of months about taking care of real people's needs, um, it's foolish. You know, it's not good government. It's, uh, well, they say after the recession, there were 13 separate votes on extending unemployment insurance. So every one of the cliffs, every one of those votes required a political cost from both Democrats and Republicans. Right. It required action, it created uncertainty, we all know how much the business community uh, hates uncertainty. And if, uh, if I hated uncertainty as a businessman, I certainly hate it even more as a person living on the very margins of, of, of wealth. So the notion is, uh, and by the way, I think this is also an idea that have bipartisan appeal. Um, as, as you know, through PPI, uh, if we go back to Milton Friedman and our childhood, he would always say, uh, don't, uh, don't ever start a federal program because you can't stop it. <laughs> you know, let's, let's starve it. So why not have federal programs that turn on when they're needed and turn off when they're not needed? And that's the idea of the automatic stabilizers. And there were three obvious places to apply them um, in sort of no particular order. One is with SNAP benefits. When, when people are hungry, the SNAP benefits should kick in. The second is the federal contribution to Medicaid, which is one of the huge state responsibilities and burdens. And when people lose their health insurance, as we have between five and 12 million, depending on who's counting, people lost their health insurance through this pandemic, lost their job, lost their insurance. Um, and then the third big thing is unemployment insurance. And so our bill would simply say that when the unemployment rate is high, the federal contribution to unemployment insurance should kick in. And when it's low, it shouldn't. And let's titrate it by state. So the, and this again, recognize that difference give me different positions. Uh, the example that's most easy for me to use is I, I represent Virginia. Virginia is always the best managed state in the country. Rainy day fund, lots of federal contractors, four large uh, industrial based firms are in my district. We have federal employees. Um, you know, we will bounce back a lot faster than most. Other hand, Nevada was 28 official unemployment the last I saw. And nobody's going to Vegas. They don't want to get on airplanes. They don't want to stay in hotels. They, um, the people that may be most attracted to it um, are the ones who've seen their income shrink. So they could be a year or two longer than Virginia and recovering. So they're going to need help a lot longer than other states will. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Um, I want to bring Ben Ritz in for a minute. Uh, ben uh, put out a really big report, really a, a 
we, what we called a progressive budget last year before the pandemic hit, before we were in this incredible, unprecedented crisis, in which he called for automatic stabilizers. Uh, and then when this came on, uh, uh, has been steadily beating the drum for that. Ben, you made the point that, you know, we, you know, in addition to the political difficulties that the congressman noted, you know, 13 votes or however many times you got to go out there and, you know, uh, take some hits, uh, uh, but uh, casting a vote, uh, you know, we all, because of that, we always tend to understimulate, you know, in the depths of a recession and a downturn. We don't get it exactly right, and, we, and our timing is off. You know, we don't keep we don't keep stimulating as long as the crisis is, is going on. You want to say a word about the automatic, you know, stabilizer idea? And, uh, and yeah, I think that uh, what we saw with the CARES Act is a perfect example of this being a problem when when Congress wanted to support uh, the unemployed and increase unemployment benefits. Uh, we had all these Republicans saying that they wanted to uh, pay, well, it was both parties actually, wanting to set unemployment insurance to replace a flat percentage of wages, 100% of wages. Uh, and they found that they couldn't do it because of how antiquated our unemployment systems were. And so we settled on this temporary $600 a week bump up uh, that only lasted for a few weeks. And a few months later, we ended up right back in this situation where there was nothing done to, uh, to bolster state unemployment insurance systems to figure out how long this $600 should continue when it, when it should begin to phase down. And, you know, we have Congressman Beyer with his bill that would uh, really put it on a, a, a path to be predictable and provide support to the economy as long as it's needed. And instead of doing that, uh, we now had the benefit just expire completely. Nobody on either side really wanted it to just disappear. And that's what happened because of this political impasse. And I think that if we had automatic stabilizers along the lines of what the Congressman has introduced or what we put out uh, in our emergency economics report earlier this year, we wouldn't have had uh, this kind of crisis. Ben, thank you for being so articulate on this. And uh, we're just following your early lead and in, in your insight. But by the way, we, so we had a, um, the first economic hearing that I had to chair about two, three weeks ago on automatic stabilizers. So we had two from the Dems and the Republicans. And the Republican argument was, uh, hey, look, this is kind of job to make these decisions. Let's not put it on stabilizers. You're denying us the ability to work the will of the people. To which my dear friend, Congressman Nick said, and we're doing such a good job, which is why our approval rate is 9%. <laughs> you know, I mean, people, look, I know people like their individual congressmen, but they hate Congress because they look and see how, how ineffective we are overall. So let's try to do something to make us more effective. Well, I mean, it, it's so hard, as you know, uh, Congressman, these days particularly to bridge this deep gulf of polarization. Uh, and, you know, the Republicans had a critique of the $600 extension that, you know, this was going to be too much money, that it was going to overpay people unemployment benefits and uh, take away their incentive to get jobs that are open. You know, there are not a lot of those in this pandemic recession, but uh, uh, has, have we seen any evidence of that people have not been leaving a job opportunities in this crisis? Now, and, and Will, that's, 
I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the most um, fatuous of the Republican arguments against the 600 hours. So as Ben mentioned, they talked about, well, let's limit it to a percentage or let's, let's titrate it by person. Well, first of all, we saw that because the state unemployment systems are so creaky in Virginia, which is well-managed, uh, the software was last updated in the late 1980s. So for the first couple of weeks, you couldn't get a phone call answered. When you went to the website, it would crash every couple of minutes. And it's taken months for us to get the system up and running well. And the number one uh, constituent service complaint we have, you know, the hundreds of calls a day are all about work with me to help Richmond pay my unemployment insurance correctly. And we're one of the best states. Mm -hmm. So, it, but then also the notion that I think University of Chicago came out and said two thirds of the people getting the $600, that's more than they were making before. Uh, what Chicago, the, one of the things that points they forget was that almost all those lost their health insurance if they had it. So they now have that responsibility or perhaps COBRA payments. The other deal was that the people who've lost their jobs overwhelmingly were people in the bottom quartile of wage earners. So these are the people making minimum wage. And yes, they, they may be in, in theory making a little bit more with the $600, but um, everybody, every economist we talk to says, this is gonna widen the pandemic, widen the income gap, it's gonna widen the wealth gap, it's going to diminish their contributions to Social Security to therefore make their retirement more insecure. You know, if we can't help these people a little bit more in the time of, uh, of a pandemic, then when else would we? And then, of course, there's the Yale study that shows that there's absolutely no evidence that anyone's refusing to return to work because they're getting the $600. Right. I, I saw an interesting study. I'm forgetting where it was published, but they looked at uh, how, number of job applications for different jobs uh, in, in over the past few months. And they found that actually jobs that paid at the lowest quartile, uh, or maybe it was quintile, but jobs at the bottom actually had uh, the healthiest amount of applicant uh, applications that even if you, even if you do have some workers on the margin who are uh, discouraged from going back to work because they're making so much more on unemployment benefits, that's not making its way into the labor market because there are just so many people who want the security of a job that, uh, you know, this isn't a big problem we're going to see for some time. And a social security contribution, maybe health insurance. And, and also one of the things that people miss too is you can't quit your job to go get the $600. You, you had to be fired or laid off. Right. And Ben, another number that I'm sure is that for a long-term unemployed, people without a job for more than 39 weeks, really quick. That's frightening. That's deeply structural. Those aren't the people who are going to come right back to work when, when the Russians introduce their vaccine to us. Right. Um, well, uh, let me ask a, you know, uh, a different question. Uh, hasn't this problem all been solved by uh, President Trump's executive order for a uh, $400 plus up in uninsurement, uninsurance, I keep saying uninsurance, excuse me, unemployment benefits uh, that somehow he's going to get the states, which are absolutely strapped, to make a contribution to? Uh, anybody have any confidence in that theory? No, not at all. In fact, uh, my wonderful communications director, Aaron Fritzner, has been putting together the 
from 50 state governors, about half of them Republican and half Democrat, about how uh, unlikely this is to ever be possibly implemented. Let's begin with the fact that the $100 the states are supposed to pay, they don't have the money. As Republican Governor Larry Hogan says, they're, they're going to be $550 billion short already this year because of the pandemic, state and local governments. And then the 300, which is supposed to come to, from FEMA money, um, there's no plan to figure out how to get it out to the states to put it into their systems, which will take weeks to revamp to do it. There's even this really naive idea that they were going to limit it to 70% of last year's income. Well, when you figure 18 million people on unemployment insurance, this that's 18 million, well, think, think end of year. <laughs> it's going to ever to do that. I saw a, a, a study that said that it would take most states uh, somewhere between eight and 20 weeks to, uh, to rearrange their unemployment systems so that they could uh, replace you know, a percentage of wages instead of delivering a flat dollar bump up. And it occurred to me that the CARES Act was passed about 20 weeks ago. You know, if, if, if Republicans really wanted this, uh, this wage replacement policy, uh, they, the time to do it was back in March, that it wasn't to just wait around and do nothing until, uh, until it expired. It just, it seems like there, there were always, uh, you know, several weeks behind there. You know, if you to early the Republican theory of made sense back then, all of us hoped that this was going to be an eight to 10 week thing. But by the end of the May, end of May, we realized this was going to go through the end of the year and perhaps for much of 2021. But we don't, we still don't know how long it's going to last. Well, and, and, you know, apart from the difficulties of getting the states that have no money, and again, the Republicans are balking at sending aid to the states and the cities, which are both looking at, you know, Laying, they're laying off workers or increasingly less able to deliver just basic services. So apart from testing the capacities of systems that you noted, Congressman, have already you know <laughs> broken down in this crisis, uh, the point of the automatic stabilizers is it takes advantage of the federal government's fiscal capacity, which the states and the localities don't have. They have to balance their budgets. Uh, they're under strictures that Washington isn't. So that in a crisis, it's always Washington that is the funder of last resort that has the money that can step in and do things that uh, they can't do, uh, which I think, you know, uh, uh, is why we need legislation. We need the federal government to assume a larger role in a downturn like this to keep the economy afloat. That's that's sort of a, a critical part of the whole theory of of the automatic uh, stabilizers. And, and so, Will, what's happened is we've seen the federal government step in on the business side, uh, the big business side. Uh, I think one of the, we're trying to get the Fed Reserve, the act numbers, but as many as 100,000 small businesses have already closed permanently. But the big businesses, and we're losing some big businesses too, but Wall's doing fine. Uh, Jay Powell, the, the Fed chair, has been, um, Munificent, generous right. in terms of making sure that uh, the the bonds aren't going to fail and that there's confidence in the, the liquidity. But we also have to tell the people that aren't businesses that are their liquidity is can I pay the rent this month and put groceries on the table? Uh, you're you're you make a great point about sort of the 
the class divide that's been illuminated in this crisis. You know, we have a lot of workers and probably a lot of your constituents, people who work in Washington or near Washington, office workers, basically, who can continue to work and do, you know, telecommuting. I'm down on the Eastern Shore of Virginia working today, and the, we can do that, but there are just so many people, essential workers, uh, grocery workers, frontline, uh, uh, you know, healthcare workers, and as you pointed out, uh, low-income and minority folks who have particularly been hit hardest about with job losses and business losses. If you look at the numbers, as we've done recently on uh, on minority small businesses, they've uh, tanked, gone under at uh, disproportionately high numbers. So this is the recession we should never forget that's really hitting the most vulnerable, pe vulnerable people in our society hardest. Uh, and uh, a lot of those are even Republican constituents and the Republicans don't seem to want to step up to help. The, the number of people in Kentucky on unemployment insurance is astonishing. Right. Uh, despite Mitch McConnell's you know, quote unquote leadership. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting um, pieces of data I've seen came out of the BEA, the Bureau of Economic, whatever, and Department of Commerce, once you do the GDP report um, right. two weeks ago that showed that this is the one that had 2.9 decrease in, in both in the second on an annualized. Uh, we covered that. Uh, most of that decrease, the vast, I mean, 25% of the 33% was people in the top quartile, basically you and you and I, not spending money on personal services outside the home. Another 4% were um, people like Carl selling down all their inventory. <laughs> so a little fake and very little of it was um, a reduction in actual capacity, manufacturing, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what we did with that was save it. We spent on an annualized basis $3 trillion, $3 trillion in the second quarter. Um, that was a 22% savings rate, the highest in American history. People are saving like crazy. Everyone had to do complaints, they're not going on vacation. And so that birth is rapidly increasing. People at the bottom were only kept above ground because of the direct money and the $600. Right. We take that away, they're, they're really hurt. Uh, we just put out a big uh, report this uh, week, Congressman. I hope you'll take a look at it, your folks at JEC and your staff, called Building American Resilience. We talked about automatic stabilizers. Uh, and we talked about that phenomenon. Wall Street has been strangely resilient in this uh, in this crisis. You know, the economy may be as bad as it's been since the Great Depression, but <laughs> stock prices almost hit a new record yesterday. So uh, there is, you know, the, the, the pain and suffering and sacrifice uh, of dealing with this pandemic has not been equally distributed by a long shot in the society. But look, we almost- Economically not, and certainly the, the illness themselves. Right. You're African American five more times, five times more likely to die of coronavirus than if you're one. Look, we only have a couple of minutes left, and uh, and I know you've got to go soon, but I do want to stop lobbing so many softballs and put a tougher question <laughs> to you. So, uh, look, and in, in, in that American Resilience Report we just put out, Ben had a piece which called for two way stabilizers stabilizers on the downside when the economy turns down but also stabilizers on the upside that so when you do start growing again, when you're in a long expansion, you can actually begin to whittle down some of the uh, just uh, enormous deaths that we've been adding. We, you know, 
we had a trillion dollar deficit before the pandemic arrived. Now we're looking at five trillion and that uh, four trillion, and that doesn't include what you know the further relief we need to pass to uh, help people at this point. But um, at some point, let's say the first hundred days of the Joe Biden administration, things look pretty grim, don't they? I mean, there's a big overhang of debt. Uh, does this automatic stabilizer logic apply? on the upside when the economy is doing better as a way to say, okay, we've got to, we've got to get some of that growth and buy down the debt so that we can, we have the fiscal space to, to stimulate in the next downturn. Well, I does, and I'm glad Ben has been thinking and writing about it. Um, I don't believe in modern monetary theory. Um, you know, it'd be, it'd be, nice if it turned out to be true, but it, it sort of flies in the face of all the macroeconomics I've been studying for the last 50 plus years. And it, which means that you were really unique position, the strongest currency in the world, America, the world runs on the dollar. Um, you, we are still this extraordinary economic powerhouse. Uh, and we've been able to get away with it for a long time, but I worry that we can't get away with it forever as I forget which economist I'm quoting who said, it's something's too good to last, it won't. Um, it was Herb Stein. Okay, <laughs> and uh, who was a Williams graduate. So right. anyway, uh, the, but I tend to think it, it uh, in, you know, I had four years in Switzerland where they're very good about paying for what they want. Is if we're willing or eager as American people to, to spend 20, 21, 22% of GDP on the things we want, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera, our defense budget, our, our arts, then we should be willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And when we're floating down around 15, 16, 16.5% of revenue as a percentage of GDP, when there's that big gap, um, I think we need to really look seriously at revenue measures. That's why. Um, the Simpson-Bowles Commission failed. That's why the, the Obama you know, Joint Committee they put together to solve the budget failed is because uh, one half of our elected officials don't believe in any revenue measures. And it's just not gonna work unless we do that. Unless we're willing to say, let's just get rid of basically you know, 20 to 25% of what, we're, what we have chosen to spend money on in our, in our federal government. And I don't think that's happening. Right. Uh, well, listen, I think I'm afraid uh, this opens up a whole new fascinating discussion. Uh, and I'd love to get your view of what you're, what you're hearing from your constituents. But unfortunately, I've been told that we, we have to cut this off at uh, four o'clock. So uh, I'd, I'd love to come back if, if yeah, it works for us. I'd love to, we'll have to, love to continue the conversation and maybe talk about some of your work on climate change and other things. But in any event, uh, it's really generous of you, uh, Congressman, to come and join us today. Uh, thanks for your comments. Good luck to your bill. I hope that becomes part of whatever whatever finally comes out of this, these protracted negotiations on the Hill, uh, because working people need to be kept uh, above water uh, until this pandemic is contained. But, uh, ben, thank you for your, your great work and comments today. And uh, you all take it easy, and we'll, we'll be talking. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Ben.